0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Denone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode
2: where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste.
0: Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint.
2: Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. This is the 269th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind the scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top chef with a new cookbook, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to play with flavors. Don't be afraid to explore new territory, to try different ingredients, different recipes, and different techniques. Yes, there's comfort in doing and cooking and eating what we know and like, but it's fun to challenge ourselves and our palates, and we may just discover our next favorite thing. So whether you cook often or rarely, I challenge you to experiment and await the joy that it may bring. That's my tip today. Now I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me today. It is Leah Cohn. She is the chef and owner of Pig & Cow and Piggyback NYC in New York City. At Pig & Cow, Leah serves Southeast Asian cuisine influenced by her Filipino upbringing, and her annual expeditions to the region. Leah is a recipient of the 2013 Star Chefs Rising Stars Award and an alum of Top Chef Season 5. In her debut cookbook, Lemongrass and Lime, Southeast Asian Cooking at Home, she gives home cooks the confidence to bring Southeast Asian cooking to their own kitchens. So hi, Leah. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You know, hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, seems I feel like-, like that's everyone's response right now. <laughs> hanging yeah, in there <laughs> for the past, yes, like seven months <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> for sure. Um, well, I always like to start with my guests about about their background and just find out how uh, you got into cooking and what inspired you to pursue that as your career. Sure. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, I feel like I've been cooking my whole life. Um, I, you know, I I think I remember my first cooking class, I was probably five years old. Um, And it was something simple, you know, like baking. Um, But my grandmother was a home ec teacher. And so I would always cook with her. um, And I would always cook with her during the holidays. And I just really loved being in the kitchen. Um, And my parents both worked a lot. So I would always kind of just get dinner started for them um and then so it was kind of like the prep cook um I would like you know chop Ooh. some garlic or you know put a pot of rice on for my mom and then when she would come home I would help her um so that was kind of like where I initially I guess fell in love with cooking and then when I was in my early mid-teens I guess um I went to uh, co- a cooking school for the summer. And from there, I just, you know, I, I didn't know at the time when I was like 15 or 16 that I wanted to make it a career, but I knew that I was super into cooking um, and trying new things. And then after a failed attempt at college, regular college, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I um, came back home. I went to U of A for like a semester and then I came back home and to go to just like a local school. Um, And then I decided I needed a job. So I was cooking in a restaurant. And I realized that I was more excited to go to work every day than to go to school. So I stopped regular college again. um, And then I enrolled in the CIA. And that's kind of how it got
1: started. Wow. Well, I mean, enrolling in the CIA is is quite a move. I'm always impressed that people Who who've graduated from there? um, Because it's 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 like the best of the best. Uh, Yep. (laughs) (laughs) What? um, So then, so then you're at the CIA, and then how did you? Where did? What restaurants did you work out, or how did your? What was your track after that? Before. Launching your own place.
2: <laughs> so yeah, um, after or during the CIA, I worked for David Burke. Uh, I did my internship there, and then um, at Park Avenue Cafe in the city. Um, originally, I actually wanted to do my externship, as I call it, in um, in New Orleans, just because like. I wanted to go party in New Orleans, (laughs) but that didn't pan out. Probably. Um, you know, I think everything happens for a reason. And so that, um, so I stayed local and, um, I worked for David Burke and then, um, I actually did the bachelor's program at the CIA, um, as well. And so after that, one of the chefs, was like I think you would do you would do a really good job studying abroad in Italy. Have you ever thought about that? And I was like, no, but um, I would love to, you know, to try. I mean, I love cooking Italian food. So he helped me um, get into a cooking school called the Slow Foods Program in Italy. And I did that for six months, and that gave me an opportunity to get a working visa. So I worked at a uh, two-Michelin-star two restaurant um, in Sicily, and I was there for a little under a year. And then I came back home, and I was like, okay, now what? Um, and so then I you know, I stodged around at a bunch of different places, and I found a home at 11 Madison Park, um, which as we all know, is, you know, one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, And so I was there for a year and then I decided, you know, fine dining is not really for me. Um, And I just wanted to – you Know, find something that was a little bit more low key, kind of like I, I think I'm just like a very low key kind of person, something that fit my personality. So, I decided to work for Amberell, um, at Centro Teca, which uh was in the West Village, it is no longer open. And I worked for her for six months as a sous chef, and then Top Chef came knocking, um, and someone had recommended me to, you know, try out for the show. And I didn't really know much about the show because I was away when, um, I was in Italy, um, when, uh, Top Chef was like really, really gaining its popularity. And then like, when I came home, I went straight to work. So I didn't have time for TV. Um, and so I, you know, um, I think I, it took like about a month for me from when I, applied or had sent in a video to when we started filming. It was like a really quick turnaround time. I feel like someone probably like pulled out last minute and they were like scrambling to like find a replacement and that replacement was me. Um, and so yeah, I competed on Top Chef and then after Top Chef, I came back to Centro Teca and had left to pursue her TV career. Um, so I kind of benefited from that and took over as um, chef de Cuisine. And then I was there for a, about a year. And then I decided to do something completely um, different and move to Southeast Asia and really focus on a cuisine or multiple cuisines. But that part of the world that I had always found intimidating, but wanted to know more about and learn how to cook that food. And so, yeah, that's... um that is my story. And then after Asia, I came back and opened Pink and cap.
1: Amazing. Wow. I mean, what experiences you, you had, I mean, from Italy to EMP to competing on TV <laughs> and then yeah. traveling, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite, quite a, a history. I love it. Um, what, so when, when you were on, just when you're on Top Chef, what type of, um, I don't know when you were with those challenges. Were you kind of like finding your your culinary style at that at that point, or or was it really when um, when you were on your travels in Southeast Asia that that you felt you found your kind of calling of what cuisine was yours? Or I
2: would say, um, you know, when I was competing on Top Chef, maybe a little bit. I was um, finding my food voice, but I would say, you know, I had cooked everyone else's food. I didn't know how to make my own food. I didn't know what my own food was at the time. Um, so yeah, I think really, you know, when I, when I traveled to Southeast Asia, I knew that, um, that was kind of the food that, that I wanted to, to be cooking for the long haul. Um, and, you know, I didn't know it at the time because my mom is, is Filipino and I've been going to that part of the world since I was four years old. Um, you know, growing up, I kind of was training my brain and my taste buds um, about those flavors. And then it all kind of like clicked for me once I was
1: there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm such a fan of your cooking. I mean, whatever clicked or however <laughs> it, works. it worked. It worked. Thank you. Um, but for people maybe listening that don't know the type of food you're doing at Pig and & Cow and, and, and also um, at Piggyback which um, uh, and what the status is now with your restaurants, if you want to talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure, yeah. So Pig & Cow has been open for eight years. We just celebrated our eight-year anniversary in um, September. And um, Amazing. we cook Southeast Asian food. We cook Southeast Asian food at Pig and Cow. Um, it is basically, you know, all dishes or recipes that I learned either for that year abroad or when I, you know, every year my husband and I go back um, to visit for R&D. And so, you know, when I was there, originally I wanted to just focus on Thai food, but since you have to have, you can, you're you only allowed a three month visa when you're in Thailand, um, uh, I don't even know if that's the case now, um, but initially it was three yeah. months, and so when my visa would run up, I would just go to a different country um and so I would spend like a month there and then always come back to um to Thailand. so I figured you know i I learned so many different dishes and types of cuisine in that in that um in that year that. I didn't want to just kind of pigeonhole myself to just one type of cuisine. And I feel like Southeast Asia is broad enough, but also narrow enough that like you could do a Southeast Asian restaurant without having to be super specific by the cuisine. Um, And so, yeah, we're open for takeout and delivery and we have outdoor seating. We're not open for indoors right now Um, at 25% capacity. It just doesn't make sense for us. Um, And piggyback unfortunately is still closed. We opened like two months before the pandemic hit and, um, and it was a crazy opening. We were like so busy. Like I thought like I could not come up for air. Um, we were that busy and I thought I would never catch up. Um, cause I just felt super behind on everything. And then COVID happened, and we have not reopened yet. Um, unfortunately I just didn't think we had such a, you know, pig and cow has been open for eight years. So we have, you know, people know the name, know the restaurant, we have our regulars piggyback, you know, it's just two months and there's so much competition out there just for takeout and delivery. Um, and we really didn't get to, you know, touch a big audience in that sense. So, um, and yeah, and outdoor dining is unfortunate um, in that location because we are on a street where there's a police station. And so all the cop cars basically go halfway into the street, like when they park, they back up and it's like half of the sidewalk is being taken up by the rear end of their car. So yeah. we don't have space for um, for outdoor dining. So we are waiting. Um, to reopen um you know i don't know how the winter probably not in the winter um it doesn't make sense because i doubt we'll you know be allowed 50 percent capacity so spring 2021 <laughs> tbd yeah
1: yeah well i hope your your landlords are being kind with you with your rent. Uh,
2: well, our partners actually own the building. So that's good. (laughs) That is helpful. And our landlord at pig and cow is, has been, um, as helpful as he could be, you know, he still has a mortgage and I, I understand all that stuff, but we did get a little, um, a little break. So.
1: Yeah. Well, I went by the other day and I, 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 got some food from your your takeout window which is awesome and Thank you. Um, it was delicious and i i you know i can't can't wait to go back and have more and i remember i was at your your opening party for piggyback and that was was quite a it was quite a space i mean it's you know it's 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 huge um yep. and i yeah but it's interesting with you um we're talking about the police cars cuz it's like i it's the first i've you know it's it's such a, 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 a kind of random reason why you can't have outdoor dining i mean some people have city bikes racks in front of their places and you know different different reasons but like how i mean how crazy is
2: yep we is that? We did not. Um, we were not lucky at both restaurants. Pig and Cow is on the side of um, the bike lane, so we don't have, you know, the the part the street parking. Um, so we can't extend into the street parking. So we have like, as you saw, a long, narrow. My husband likes to call it veranda. Um, <laughs> fancy. You know, we did the best we could with the limited space that we can. Yeah. Um, but at Piggyback, it's Yeah. It's very unfortunate. And, um, you know, the, the street was actually closed from the protests up until I want to say a couple of weeks ago. So we wouldn't even be able to get like, um, our food delivered because it's, it was blocked off, um, for all vehicles. So, um, yeah, that space. I love that space. It's such a fun, huge restaurant slash, uh, you know, event space, but all the reasons why it made the most sense for us to open pre-COVID um, are the reasons why it doesn't make sense right now. Um, just like with location and you know not having any sporting events in MSG or you know and any any events going on and a lot of people are working from home, so uh, it's a ton of office space around there. And I think it's probably at 25 to 30 percent capacity right now, um, is what I've heard. So
1: yeah. Yeah, very challenging. I hear you on that for sure. Um, yeah, my it's been such such a crazy time to be in, and just hoping for the best for everyone to get through it. What? Um, so let's talk about your cookbook a bit. Uh, uh-huh. So, what inspired you to want to do a cookbook, and what was the process like? I know you you worked with Stephanie Banyas, who I know. Um, uh-huh. Uh, co-writing it so lemongrass and lime uh i love the i love the title thank you i did not come up with it <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> the,
1: the publisher <laughs> you know
2: it's like so hard coming up with names um for a restaurant or for your baby or for a cookbook and usually i'm the one who i think you know comes up with something uh a name but for some reason i was just stumped on this one um so, yeah, the publishers came up with the name and I like it. I think, you know, there are two ingredients that um, you'll find a lot in the cookbook um, and it there are ingredients that represent the cuisines and the, and the recipes that you'll find. Um, but, yeah, I would say, the, you know, the cookbook took three years to make, um, which is a little longer than most cookbooks take. Uh, I think they usually take two to Two and a half years, but you know, um, I'm on the I was on the slower end, which is totally fine. Um, and the book is based off of my travels to Southeast Asia, um, and I just wanted to have a book where you know. Just like I didn't want to be so specific with just doing Thai cuisine or just doing Filipino food, a lot of cookbooks are very cuisine specific. So if someone who is like me enjoyed going to that part of the world and just wanted to you know, learn a handful of recipes from each country, this was kind of, you know, the, this is a cookbook for you. So that's one of the reasons why I, um, I made it like that. And because it's a a lot of them are, um, the recipes that you'll find at pig and cow, or they were specials on the menu at pig and cow, or just dishes that I have always wanted to cook, but never had a home for. Um, I couldn't put them on my, you know, on the menu at, any of my restaurants because because um, we had one in Jersey City as well, just because either the pickup was too hard or, you know, for a bunch of reasons why, and I won't go into that, of why you can't necessarily put things on the menu that you want to. Um, so I wanted to include those in the book and give them a home. And yeah, I had I had Stephanie as my co-author because I'm a terrible writer <laughs> and she is much better. I mean, that's her that that she co-wrote on um, like all of Bobby's books. So she is a professional um, in that sense. And she really helped me um, guide me through the whole process of, you know, uh, of a cookbook because I had never done one before. And she has done, I want to say, like 20 Probably, um, I might yeah. be getting that number wrong, but she has she has done her fair share of cookbooks. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it all went down.
1: Yeah, I was going to say for anyone who I I I know you're referring to Bobby Flay because um, oh that, yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah. So in case anyone doesn't know who Bobby is, that's that's Bobby. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me let me ask you um my questions from my my last episode. On episode 268, I had on Carlos Suarez of Bobo, Rosemary's, Claudette, and Roey's, and Jan de Rochefort of, of Bocaria restaurants. And they're the founders of Safe Eats, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to support restaurants to keep their staff and guests safe. So first question is from Carlos. He wants to know. How do you make your pad thai unique and special? He noted he's been cooking quite a bit at home now and of pad thai. And so he was looking forward to your book and wanted to see maybe if that recipe is in it.
2: (laughs) Um, So that recipe is in the book. Um, I like to use pork fat as the... cooking fat, uh, like not using like canola oil or anything like that. I use rendered pork, uh, render down pork fat, um, to Mm -hmm. use. And then I, um, I use Tamarind paste, which I'm not, there's a bunch of recipes out there for Pad Thai. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I won't say which is the best or which is not, but I, I like recipes that use Tamarind paste in, um, in the sauce and, um, I make, I make fresh tamarind paste. Uh, I don't use like the, I don't recommend using the one that you can buy pre-made in a jar. I just don't think that that is as, um, as fresh tasting, even though like the tamarind is already dried, if that makes any sense. Um, but I just feel like it's, it tastes fresher if you just make it yourself. Um, and I think they also add some like preservatives in, in the tamarind paste that's already pre-made. Um, and I say, I would say like, uh, and good fish sauce. Um, so I like Red Boat fish sauce um, a lot. I also recommend using Squid Brand fish sauce. Um, it's a little bit cheaper and more accessible, I think. Although Red Boat is, you can find, I think you can even find it in like Whole Foods now. But um, back in the day, like a couple of years ago, um, you couldn't find it everywhere. But I think that it is is much more available. Um, and I would say in my in my book, We don't specify the quantity of the sauce because some people like there's, you know, saucier than others and some people like minimal sauce. So I have the recipe for the sauce. And I would say, if you're going off of based off my recipe, just add a little at a time, um, and then see if you want to add how much however much you want to add. Um, I, I my my recipes are very much like a guideline, but I know that everyone has their own specific flavors and ways they like eating things. So some people might like things a little saltier or sweeter. Um, so I would say at at the end, if you want to add more sauce, add more sauce, but just you know, do a little at a time. And then I always adjust the the flavor at the end by adding more fish sauce. Um, and I think it says that in the cookbook, I don't have it right in front of me, but I always add more fish sauce at the end because I don't want to add too much in the beginning. Um, I mean, the sauce has fish sauce in it, but I add extra fish sauce as well.
1: Ah, all right. Well, that was, it's a lot of, um, great (laughs) secrets (laughs) and tips. No, it's awesome. Um, I got it and I'm getting hungry now for, (laughs) for some pad Thai. Um, What so? My second question from Jan is, what's your comfort food? Um, Pizza. (laughs) 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 Whatever
2: it's like, whatever pepperoni pizza. um, Whenever I'm, you know, I'm having a a day that uh, that's not going right, or um, you know, it's just pizza makes me feel better. Always. yeah it's my go to it's what I like to eat for um for my birthday I have like a a place that I've been going to since I was a kid um so I always eat pizza every year for my birthday um yeah i love i love pepperoni and I love
1: pizza awesome now I'm getting hungry for that too everything I'm, <laughs> i think I'm, I'm here for a meal um so before we take a break i just want to ask what what advice would you give to someone who wants to be a chef, a restaurateur, do you, do you think it's important to go to cooking school? Do you, I mean, your path was, I guess, like, I'm not, well, I don't know if there is a traditional path nowadays, but I don't think yours was, but um, what advice would you give to someone?
2: I would say that, I mean, culinary school, while I enjoyed it, and I excelled in culinary school, I don't think you have to necessarily go, um, you know, CIA is a lot of money (laughs) and, uh, you're never going to pay off your student loans being a line cook. Um, but I mean, you know, for me, I needed that kind of structure and I needed, um, I, I, I think I benefited from it tremendously, but for people who, um, you know, can learn as they go. Um, I, I would say, stage in restaurants. I know right now is a really weird time because of COVID and everything. Um, but I would say, be prepared to work a lot. Um, be a sponge and just absorb everything. Don't think that you know a lot already because um, you don't. <laughs> and um, and just you know, um, be know that you're going to make mistakes along the way, uh, especially for people who are opening restaurants, because I still make mistakes all the time. Um, And be okay with that, be okay with being uncomfortable. um, And yeah, just really try to find, you know, the your food voice as early as you can. um, So you you have a clear vision of, you know, what, what you want to do.
1: Yeah, well, that's great advice. So um, terrific. We will take a little break now and we'll come back and then we'll have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Every time your customers eat and drink... They vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, To Know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. To Know North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But to know North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp. certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Leah Cohn. She is the chef and owner of Pig & Cow. She is a top chef alum, and she has a new cookbook out, Lemongrass and Lime, Southeast Asian Cooking at Home. So, Leah, it's time for my speed round game. What this is is I name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. 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 Oh, okay. I thought that was the first question. <laughs> yeah, no, you got the sample one. You you nailed it. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne?
2: Cocktail. <laughs>
1: Hesitating there, but I got you. Cocktail. Okay, how about tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. mooping or C Sig. I had a feeling you were going to say that, but I did get your mu ping the other day and it was quite delicious. Next time I'm Thank going to, you. I've had the sisig, but um, not, not during these times. So,
2: well, I would say during these times, mu ping, just because the sisig you really want on the sizzling platter, uh, which we don't do because everything's served in to go containers, unfortunately,
1: but uh, normally sisig all the way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, I have three more. Uh, Competing on a TV cooking show or writing a cookbook? Oh, um, neither.
2: (laughs) I guess competing, competing.
1: I'm thinking, what about traveling in Asia or or traveling in Italy? (laughs) Traveling in Asia. (laughs) Yeah, and actually, I've I've been I've I'm I've can't I have i have been i have i am i can not i can not wait till we can travel again. And because um, I've been to Thailand and Laos, but I'd like to explore a lot more and spend more time there, like you did. Yeah, so, those places are amazing. Yeah, really, really they are. So, um, well, when we can travel again, so yep. um, two more. Okay, cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn. Manhattan. Awesome. That's the game. It's fun. You you got the speed of it, which is good. Uh, so for industry news, I picked out an article on Eater. It was titled "When It Comes to Indoor Dining, Restaurant Workers Face the Greatest Risk." It all has to do with the with ventilation, aerosols, and the fact that restaurant workers are stuck in the same air for hours while working indoors. And this was by Alizar. Suntag. So this is this is you know a big topic with indoor dining and with COVID and now New York City is at twenty five percent capacity. Um, and you know it's it's interesting because I find the people I know, um, everyone is different with their take on whether they're comfortable dining out, dining outdoors, dining indoors. Um, it's 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 very uh, personal. So um I know for you you're I mean what's your what's what's your feeling on indoor dining I know you're not you're just outdoor alfresco fresco at um Pig and Cow mm-hmm. uh, at this time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different um things to consider when we're talking about indoor dining. Um I I would say obviously number first and foremost like safety of, um, your customers and your staff, um, are the most important. And, and then, you know, is it cost effective? Does it make sense, um, for, and every restaurant is going to be different, um, because of the layout and how much space they have and, you know, um, and at what percent are we allowed to, um, to, to fill the restaurants. For us, 25% capacity does not make sense, um, to do indoors. That would be like 16, 16 people guests that we could have inside. And we, since, you know, we are doing outdoor dining, but it's just a takeout window. So we have no servers. We have no, um, bussers, um, so we would have to bring back all of that, all that staff. Um, and I don't know that we would really make money from that. Um, plus we will, we are going to have to upgrade our, um, filtration system and those filters are very hard to get right now. Um, it's not even just like the expense, it's just like being able to get them. Um, and you know, and then there's also customer compliance. So, uh, you know, some people, obviously I get it, or, you know, they're over COVID or they have, you know, it's, they're tired of doing all the things that we should be doing. Um, and so making, ensuring that people are wearing their masks when they're not actually eating or, you know, staying in their chairs, it's just, it's a lot, um, it's a lot of headache, um, and responsibility as well. And, um, you know, and we still don't know that it's necessarily safe for Manhattan um, yet. Uh, Numbers have been going up, but it has been specific clusters and specific um, targeted locations. So I don't know that that is necessarily because of indoor dining, but I I think a lot of I would say that, uh, and then of course the demand has to be there too, right? Cause you can, you can open and rehire everyone and upgrade your filtration system. But if you don't have customers who are coming in to, you know, to eat your food, then it was all, you know, for no reason. So, I mean, that's just all the things that, you know, business owners have to think of. Um, and then, you know, God forbid, someone, someone tests positive in your staff and, you know, you know, it, well, all the protocols for that. So, um, yeah, at 25%, it doesn't make sense for us. Uh, I don't feel comfortable eating indoors myself, so I'm not going to, um, do something that I don't, you know, feel comfortable doing. Um, so we're going to wait and see, I guess, um, and see, I, I, think for the most part, Cuomo has done a very good job, um, handling the pandemic, you know, as great as someone could do. Um, And if he allows for 50%, I think that would mean that, you know, it is not showing um, a harmful threat or putting us in more danger. Um, So I would consider it at 50%. um, But again, I, you know, it's it, it would be something that I would, I would take a it would take me a very long time to really kind of decide, make a decision because I just don't feel comfortable right now.
1: Yeah, no, all, everything you said, all your reasons make sense. And I agree with you on Cuomo and I, you know, being having been in Manhattan through this pandemic and just, um, you know, seeing how New Yorkers have responded and that people are, wearing masks and we really, we really got it, you know, the numbers down and um, we certainly don't want the numbers to go back up. And I mean, I feel for, I feel for restaurant workers. I think it's, it's a challenging position for them to be in for many reasons. I mean, even you touched on even just like, kind of like policing this with, with guests and it's not like the role you want to have. Um, I feel, you know, you got wearing masks is 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 you have to wear them and it's the protection they have. But um it's been interesting, I guess, seeing what some restaurants are doing with uh putting in very fancy air circulation systems and I mean not everyone can afford to yeah. to do that. <laughs> yep, exactly. I
2: mean listen, if we had unlimited resources or we had deep pockets that we could, you know, tap into. Um, we would make, you know, maybe, maybe it would be, it would be different, um, you know, cause we would be able to pay for, or, or yeah, to buy the super fancy filtration systems, but um, we don't. And so instead of putting someone at risk, um, you know, we'll just hopefully play, yeah. you know, we'll play it by ear and see how it goes. And if the time comes when, we can and or we are going to um, get the filters, and then you know,
1: then we'll figure it out. Yeah, and and just hope. Let's just hope for a, a mild winter. <laughs> yeah, I know our luck. It's not going to be but... <laughs> So so far, we're having great weather yeah, despite yeah. these crazy storms that have come through. But totally. overall, it's been it's been pretty nice out. Um, yeah and we
2: actually just got heaters today and we um we put a roof and we're we're enclosing one side of the outdoor so of the outdoor dining so I mean that will help at least you know for the month of November and then you know I wouldn't sit outside in December so unless yeah. it's like really <laughs> we'll see we'll see what happens but we are working with um rethink um the charity rethink oh, and we're working wonderful. with cute with cook unity. So that does, um, you know, help bring in some money, uh, as well. So.
1: Oh, that's terrific. And yeah. that's, that's a good segue to my announce. I have an announcement announcement on the show. Um, I, I wanted to let everyone know about a new app it's called good to go. And it's led by Gayleen Quinn, who's the co-founder of ask chefs anything initiative, which she launched with Anna Polanski, who was my guest on episode two fifty one. So Too Good To Go is a social impact company leading the food waste revolution. And they just launched in the U.S. They're now in New York City and Boston. And it's following their success that they've had in Europe. And the app connects people with surplus food at stores and restaurants at the end of the day. So delicious produce and prepared meals aren't wasted. And I just think it's awesome. I downloaded the app Um, it's. I, I suggest you do too. I haven't. I haven't ordered yet, but um, it's too good to is their website, and it's t o o good to go. Um, check it out on their app. It's. It's a way to fight food waste by connecting neighborhood restaurants and grocery stores with consumers. So, I think it's. Um, I think it's a great idea, and i, I hope um, I hope it's super successful. So. Um, I'm now going to do my solo dining experience. Uh, So this week it's at 232 Bleecker. Here's the rundown. The location, 232 Bleecker Street at Carmine Street in the West Village of New York City. So the concept is a neighborhood restaurant featuring vegetable forward dishes, homemade pastas, and simple hearty options from an open kitchen featuring a wood-burning hearth. Uh, The founder is Adam Eskin of Dig food group and executive chef Suzanne cups or Susie cups and uh, she was last running the kitchen at USHG's untitled at the Whitney so why did I go well I was hungry for a healthfully delicious brunch my experience so this past Saturday I got a reservation it was uh, lateish on Saturday afternoon um, reservation for one I was greeted outside at the host stand or the host stands kind of like near the the the. The, the entrance, but like half indoor, half out. Um, they did a temperature check on me when I checked in, in case I wanted to go inside and use the bathroom. And I sat outside at a quaint little table on the side of the restaurant. It's a it's on a corner street, so they had a, have a good amount of seating. Um, I ordered. Susie actually was there and brought out my food for me, so I got a chance to see her and chat. It was really nice. I had a I had a really really good time. So what did I get? I got their bacon jam, egg and cheese on a housemade English muffin with Aji Dolce hot sauce. And Susie sent out some extra greens and then I also had coffee. My take, uh, well, they had me at the bacon jam. Uh, it was super yummy. Uh, great sandwich, definitely hit the spot. The ambiance, it's a welcoming and casual outdoor setting around this corner location and floor to ceiling window- windows inside. say it's perfect for dining solo or with friends. Interesting tidbit. So 232 is Dig Food Group's first full-service restaurant, and it opened in December. And personal fun fact, I had dined at the restaurant near the opening with an industry friend at the bar, and it was also great. Uh, The cost of this meal was $22, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, and their website is 232Bleaker.com. There you go. Outdoor dining in the West Village. What <laughs> lot, lot happening downtown, I find, in the city. Like, from your neighborhood in the East Village and uh, West Village, Soho, um, not as much happening in Midtown.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's one of the reasons why I Piggyback is just yeah. not, uh, not reopening right now. But, yeah, the downtown area is, I think, for the most part, everyone's being super responsible Um, with their outdoor dining and it's, it's a fun, it's a fun vibe, uh, for sure outdoors.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And especially I find blocks, um, where there's multiple restaurants in a row. Um, it's, you know, the energy is just going down the block and it's, it's, it's good. So, Okay. Uh, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Julia Bainbridge. She is a writer. She's the creator of Lonely Podcast, and she has a new book out too. It's called Good Drinks, and it features alcohol-free recipes for when, for when you're not drinking for, for whatever reason. So, Leo, what would you like to ask Julia.
2: Oh, well, first of all, I love that because um, my husband doesn't drink and I was um, I have a pretty low tolerance right now because I was pregnant. Uh, so I have like a one year old. So like when I was pregnant, I wasn't drinking. So my tolerance just like whatever <laughs> became like two drinks and that's it. So I really like the concept of that book um, because I feel like most cocktail or mocktails are just like an afterthought. I want to know, well, I want to know why she decided to do a non-alcoholic book cookbook. And um, are there any ingredients that, cause my thing is like, I find them usually to be too sweet. So are there any ways to, cause I still want like low-cal. So are there any low-cal recipes in the book that don't skimp on the
1: flavor. Um, yeah, I guess that's the question. (laughs) That's no, it's a, it's a really good question because I don't, I don't drink alcohol either, or like your husband. And, um, I find a lot of times non-alcoholic drinks, um, are too sweet or too sour or just like the balance isn't right. Uh So, um, I'm with you on that. And, uh, I'm excited to talk with her because she's the book. She's, she's got tons of recipes in this book. So, um, it's, and, uh, it should be, should be a good conversation. So is it
2: available now? Cause it I is. might
1: purchase that because I actually am really trying to learn how to make, um, non-alcoholic drinks. It is. I, I ordered a book off Amazon. So, okay. and it came, you know, how quick Amazon is. So, oh, yeah, awesome. we <laughs> have, the book. You have the book tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, um, and congratulations on your book. I'm, I'm super, super excited about it. I, I, ha- I have to order your book, actually. I'm going to do that, actually, as soon as we end this podcast. Um, cause I, you know, I, I love, you know, with my tip and telling people, um, or talking about, uh, experimenting or not being af- afraid of doing something different is like, I don't cook, I, I don't cook Thai food at home. I don't, I don't think I've ever really tried. So I'm going to have to try, take my own tip.
2: <laughs> yeah. It can be a little intimidating at first, but it's just getting all the ingredients is, you know, is the overwhelming part. But then I think, um, you know, there, are, there are recipes in there for, um, you know, beginners and experienced uh, uh, chefs or cooks, especially um, home cooks who, you know, have always wanted to try but never have have cooked Thai food at home. So there's a little something in there for everyone.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope – I love peanut sauce. That's what I'm really going for. Oh, I just made it on
2: Wendy (laughs) Williams yesterday, so.
1: (laughs) Oh, awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Well, that's cool. I have to stay tuned for that too. So, um, well, thank you so much. Congratulations on your whole career. I wish you the best in in continuing with Pig & Cow and getting uh, Piggyback open whenever it's time to get it open. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. So my guest today has been Leah Cohn. She's the chef and owner of Pig & Cow and of Piggyback NYC. And she's a Top Chef alum and she has a new cookbook, Lemongrass and Lime, Southeast Asian Cooking at Home. Her website is, well, send you to one, pigandcow.com. You can check it out. You can find a lot of info there. And you can follow her on social media at Leah S. Cohen and at Pig and Cow. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerRepublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllintheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Leah. And thanks to our publicist, Pamela. I'm Sherry Bayer. Till next week, be safe, be well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.